Well, I'm Pastor Chris. If I didn't get a chance to meet you, if you're a guest or visitor or your first time with us, I'm especially glad you're here for today, for our service today, because we're entering into a week that is actually, it's probably my favorite time of year, the, the season, especially the week of Holy Week that leads us to Easter Sunday. And no, not just because the weather is changing and we're seeing flowers and that kind of thing, but, um, but just the, the meaning of the joy of Jesus's resurrection. And, and so um, we had a great event yesterday that kind of started us off of this, this Easter season. We had our extravaganza here, and no, rain did not stop us. Um, there are about 150 people from our community, maybe you were a couple of them, that joined us for that. It was a great time, and we were able to share the Easter message to the Easter story with lots of children before they went to their egg hunt that lasted all of 30 seconds. So all your hard work of stuffing eggs, 30 seconds, man, right? It doesn't last very long, but lots of fun. And we're entering into Holy Week, and at the end of the service, we'll remind you, but there's a couple of opportunities. One being Good Friday, we're going to have a special service here at 6.30. And um, it's going to be a, a little bit different than what we usually do. We're going to have several folks who are going to be sharing where they have seen Jesus, how they have witnessed Jesus, and they're going to be doing so through the arts, through song, through dance, through poetry. And so I want to invite you to join us for that, as well as Easter Sunday, next Sunday at 11 o'clock. So, um, so we're wrapping up our Eyewitness Sermon series today. And um, lately, I, I was, when I was planning for this message, I've been on kind of like a little bit of a movie binge. I don't know if you um, have done something similar, kind of checking out some like old, maybe older movies. You know, when I say older, it's like 90s, right? Makes you feel super old. Um, yeah, yeah, stop, stop it, y'all. Um, but, but anyway, I watched um, the movie Arrival. Has anybody ever seen that? There's like a, it's like alien kind of stuff, but it's not like super scary. Um, and, and I also watched, um, rewatched The Sixth Sense. I don't know if you have any fans um, that, of that one. Um, and I realized that there was kind of a little bit of theme with my movie watching. Um, and, and it was that, like, I realized I love movies with twists, right? Not just a story that's predictable, that kind of goes along. Like, there's a time and a place for that, too. Sometimes I just need to watch something and not think about it. But I realize I love movies with twists. And maybe you have a favorite, one that kind of surprised you. Um, like I mentioned, The Sixth Sense, Arrival, Psycho, um, Memento, if everybody's seen that. The Saw movies, I have not. But um, anyway, if you're a Saw fan, we're not going to ask you to raise hands here. But, um, but actually, I was doing a little bit of research that... Um, the, did you know that what's called actually the greatest twist in movie history came from a movie. Can anybody guess what it was? This is like, I, I don't know, maybe they took a poll of people at some point. But what do you think is the greatest twist in movie history? What movie? Thank you. Star Wars, the 1980 hit, The Empire Strikes Back, is voted as the, the king of having the greatest twist. And I don't know, if you haven't seen Star Wars or whatever, once again, we're not going to ask anybody to admit that. But, um, but, but basically, there's a scene at the end of the movie, this is a little a picture of that, where um, Darth Vader, you have, have heard of Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker, even if you haven't seen anything, right? I hope so. Well, anyway, Darth Vader, he's in this kind of like this fight with, with Luke Skywalker, and it's like right before... I'm going to, a little spoiler alert, um, he separates Luke Skywalker's hand from his body with a lightsaber. Um, Vader says the most famous words that even if you have not seen the movie, you have heard. He says, 
I am your father. Oh my gosh. The bad guy is the good guy's father. And it's interesting because the viewer doesn't actually realize what's happening until this scene takes place. There's kind of hints all along, though. If you go back and rewatch these shows, rewatch the movie itself. Um, and the thing is, though, we get the reason we get surprised at the ending is because we naturally make assumptions along the way. And, and we, we make assumptions about what we're seeing from the beginning of the movie, even the story of Luke Skywalker. And, and in any of these shows, whether in Star Wars or one of these other movies, um, or even books, it causes us to kind of fall into what's called like a mental mistake. A mental mistake regarding the true story that's taking place. And, and so I want to kind of parallel that because I think there's parallels in life as well as in Scripture. There's parallels in life, right? There's times when we don't really know the full story of what's taking place until maybe later on, or maybe we never really even discover that. But also in scripture, through the, the age of the church, the last 2,000 years, we have lots of traditions that have come out of uh, stories in the Bible and certain things that take place. And, and I think we can all think about times in our lives when, when circumstances looked one way, but turned out to be something entirely different. So, so on this Palm Sunday, um, we're concluding our series of Eyewitness, and we're entering in Palm Sunday with the story of the crowds. The story of the crowds. Those, that's the eyewitnesses we're looking at today. And it's really interesting that all four Gospels, all four Gospel writers, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of them have this story all of them. And whenever you see that in scripture, it means that the story is probably very, very important to be told. And it's a story of what's known as, but to some, as the triumphal entry. And it's remembered every year on Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday before Easter Sunday. And many of you have heard the story before. In summary, right, what happens is Jesus is entering into the city of Jerusalem. He's on the colt of a donkey. And everybody, what is the crowd doing? What did you all do for two songs this morning? Right? The palm branch thing. Those of you guys at home, you know, you maybe uh, did some kind of simulation palm branch or something, right? They wave palm branches while singing what words? Hosanna, 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 which means give salvation now in Hebrew. That's what they're basically saying. So all these people are happy and Jesus is coming in. And then we see the story continues that less than a week later, less than a week, Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He comes before Pilate, the governor, and we're told at that point the crowds turn on him. Pilate gives the crowds a choice whether to crucify him or this guy Barabbas and let him free. And who do they choose to let free? Barabbas, we talked about him a couple weeks ago. And, and so then we're, we're, we're told that all this is taking place and the crowds are yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And we usually say things like, the crowds were fickle, right? They change. They change from being worshiping Jesus to now saying crucify him. It's kind of the only time of year we use that word, by the way. You know, we don't really use the word fickle very much. But we ask, you have to ask the question, though. Maybe you've asked this before. How could things have taken such a bad turn so quickly? How could things have taken such a bad turn so quickly? And it's easy to explain if you're a Phillies fan. 
Because things take a turn, even at the beginning of the season. Yes, they turn very quickly, or maybe your favorite team. Um, I went to North Carolina, and we had Coach Roy Williams when I was there. Somebody wrote in, the, in this like, student gathering place, Roy is God. Well, guess what happened after they lost that season? They crossed out the God part, right? Very, very fickle, right? Very, very changed. But, but the thing is... Um, was that enough, though, to happen over the course of a week? Meaning, was the crowd's disappointment, expecting Jesus to come in as this, this king, as their expected Messiah, to take care and wipe out all the bad guys, was that disappointment enough to make the crowds want to kill him? Think about that. Uh, think about that. Because we're told that at other times, when Jesus has hard teachings, when he's finally headed to Jerusalem and his teachings turn hard, we talked about that last week, that most of the people that didn't like that, what did they do? They walked away. They walked away. They didn't yell, kill him. They walked away. You know, so, but then we see crucify him, right? The crowds are cru saying crucify him. Why would they cheer to kill Jesus? Well, I know the only reason why I think anybody would want to kill somebody is, right, because they're threatened by them. They don't like them. But were they? These very people who saw Jesus heal and bring people back to life, who provided for food for the multitudes. I, I wrestled with this question. Why were the crowds so fickle? Why did the crowds change so quickly? And you know what the answer I found was? They didn't. They didn't. So we're, we're going to unpack that. We're going to unpack that. But first, I think it's important to look at the nature of crowds overall. I mean, do you like crowds? Anybody here love crowds, right? That's why you go shopping when you do, right? Or maybe you avoid them, but other times we have no choice. You have no choice. Uh, crowds are defined as gatherings of people in public spaces, and they vary in size, you know, this. Uh, they're people that don't know one another necessarily. They can form spon uh, spontaneously. They can be planned. Think of going to a concert, that kind of thing. Or they can be a mixture of both. And there's sometimes crowds are quiet, and there's other times when they're not. They can be orderly. They could be joyous. Or you know crowds can actually get out of hand. And the Greek word for crowds that, that the, our gospel writers are using when they're, we're, they're writing this, we have it translated into English, is oklos, oklos. It's in your notes if you're following along, if you're into that kind of stuff. If you're not, don't worry about it. But it basically means multitude or the common people, the throng, the, the popular people, right? And it's interesting because in the gospels, there's times, most of the time, that the authors are using the crowd singular, and there's other times that's less common that they're using the crowds, plural. And the reason why is because the crowd is defined or is characterized as a singular character. See, it's interesting if you pay attention to when they're using it. But the crowd, the crowd is not followers of Jesus necessarily. The crowd is people who are interested in Jesus. But the thing is, the crowd is also the origin of those who would later become followers. See, what I found in this story is that the story of Palm Sunday is really a story of three crowds. Three crowds. Actually, the course of Holy Week is a story of three crowds. And the first crowd is the crowd that we see on Palm Sunday. And so to get a, a full picture, reasonably full picture of the crowd on Palm Sunday, you have to picture this in context. Think about it. It's a big event, the celebration of the Passover, a once-a-year ritual tradition. And what happened to Jerusalem then? 
it swelled with a population. Like everybody's coming to Jerusalem. Think about home for the holidays. Like it's, everybody is coming together there for the celebration. So you can imagine that people from everywhere, Jews, proselytized, people that are called God-fearers, that are like not 100% like Jewish yet, they haven't been initiated. They're coming from near and far. They're coming from everywhere and descending upon Jerusalem. So let's check out the story. We're going to look at Matthew's version right here, starting in verse 6 in, in chapter 21. So Matthew describes it as the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large, what? Crowd, crowd, think singular, right? Spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds, pay attention there, that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. It's interesting. This is one of the very few times that Jesus led a crowd going anywhere. He led this crowd. And you imagine the disciples at this point are both amazed and confused. They'd never seen Jesus do something like this before. And what was Jesus doing? He was asserting his authority as king, as the rightful king. Just to correct you, though, this is no ancient Macy's parade, though. This is not a publicity stunt. This was a king, uh, the normal procedure of a king asserting his authority over his kingdom. And one important thing to understand is that when we talk about God's kingdom, it's not pertaining to land. It's pertaining to, you know what? People. People are God's kingdom. And so Jesus is initiating this. He's entering into Jerusalem. And the crowd we see, where are they from? They're all outsiders. They're all people. The scripture says, they're people coming outside Jerusalem, coming into Jerusalem. Because what's, what's it said when Jesus entered Jerusalem? The whole city is hearing about this, right? They're not the people. They're hearing about Jesus coming in. These are the outsiders. Some were told that started all the way back in Galilee with Jesus. It's a long way. Then there are people from Jericho. They met Jesus on the road. That there were children, there were sick, there were blind, there were lame. They were also a part of this crowd, the people who were the rejects of society. So think about that. Jesus. Jesus loves outsiders. So, so isn't that good news, right? If you consider yourself, you feel like an outsider in certain places, times, locations. This is good news. It's about outsiders, and the outsiders, admittedly, they neither understood what Jesus was doing nor his purposes. But the thing is, not even the disciples understood what he was doing at this point. They were all outsiders coming into Jerusalem. You know, they're the country people, the Perry County people coming into town, right? In big city, Harrisburg, right? They're the visitors to the big city. And, and they're, the, they're the pilgrims visiting the temple at Jerusalem for the most sacred rituals of the Jewish year. And the people of the city, when they see them coming, they're saying, what's going on? Why are all these people grouping around? Who is this guy? Who that, right? The outsiders are the ones who inform of Jesus' coming. 
But then what takes place after that that entrance, uh, between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, we see a change. If you continue to read in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 21 to 27, you see that come Monday, things change because Jesus enters the temple. And what does he do? Clears it because they're selling things. They're exchanging money. And who does he upset when he does that? The religious leaders. The religious leaders who were told chapters before, by the way, started plotting to kill him. And then Tuesday, Tuesday, what happens? He returns to Jerusalem. He establishes himself as a spiritual authority in the midst of the people in Jerusalem. And who else? Who is becoming even more upset? The religious leaders. And we see Matthew 21, verse 46 even tells us, they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of what? The crowd, because the people held that he was a prophet. So, so hold on to that, because then what happens is that Jesus goes and teaches on the Mount of Olives. And then before we know it, it's Wednesday. And Wednesday, we really don't know what took place. Um, probably Jesus was hanging out in the town of Bethany with his friends Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, Those were his buddies. That was where he stayed, his kind of home place. But then Thursday takes place that we see that there's a Passover meal that's held in the upper room with the disciples. And Jesus knows it's his last meal. We call it the Last Supper with his disciples. His disciples really don't understand what's going on. And then after that, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He doesn't go alone, though. Who does he bring? He brings Peter, James, and John. And so pretty soon, it's late at night, Jesus is praying, and what do Peter, James, and John do? They fall asleep. They're lying in a heap, and twice Jesus pleads with them to stay awake, to keep vigil on what's Jesus' most difficult night of his entire life. Yet there they slept. They slept there, right? You know, and I can't help but wondering that too. How could they have done so? How could they have done that? They were the ones invited to stand guard for Jesus. And again and again, how did that happen to them? Well, I was thinking back to several years back when I was in seminary and um, the church I was serving at the time. We planned a a Passover meal on Maundy Thursday, Holy Thursday. And then we were having like a service afterwards. And we were celebrating like Christ in the Passover. Like if you've ever done that, it's a really, really cool experience. You see the different connections of the Passover meal to Jesus. And there was a lot of like organization involved with that. I remember working with like a team of people and we had the people cooking and setting up tables. And and we had this, it was like a long, super long, day. And if you've ever volunteered for something like that or ever done something like, you know, it's like very tiring, but it's very worthwhile. Unfortunately, I wasn't in charge of the service afterwards. I was very thankful for that. So uh, we finished up the meal and then pretty soon it's like seven o'clock and we're heading over for the service and we clean things up. I remember like sitting down in like, like the back row of the sanctuary and the service started and the music started and my eyelids were like, you know, like, mm, you ever fall asleep in church? You know, oh, I'm not going to ask you if you have, but the eyelids were just like drooping. I was nice and warm too, I'm like sitting there. And soon enough, like, I'm like, you know, you get like the jump. You know, you notice that you're falling asleep. And, and I remember that experience, thinking about that. I understood why the disciples found it so hard to stay awake. And because think about the traditional Passover celebration, 
was a huge meal. You just ate a lot. Talk about Thanksgiving, right? And the tryptophan whole effect and all. But this is also in our little gathering. This was at a Methodist church. So we had grape juice, not wine. But traditionally, there'd be four cups of wine you would drink, two on top of it. And so the meal would start at sunset. It would go well past midnight. And what's more is that this took place, remember, after several days of exhausting travel and preparation. So certainly everybody in Jerusalem, <coughs> when the Passover meal is over, what did they really want to do? They wanted to crawl straight into bed. They wanted to go home after this late night feast. And, and the thing is, that it was such an annual problem for, for them, that so much that the rabbis, the ancient rabbis, they actually made a rule, believe it or not. They made a rule that a person who dozed lightly could remain a part of the Passover dinner, but anyone who fell sound asleep would have to be removed. So you could doze lightly, but not fully asleep. Like they made rules for that because they knew it happened so often. So I imagine that's what the disciples felt like. But, but that experience also led to other insights on the final hours of Jesus' life. It's also why the leaders plotted to arrest Jesus after the Passover meal. Think about that. A man so wildly popular could not be arrested in daylight, in broad daylight. So to avoid an uprising, the chief priests, the religious leaders, they had to proceed in secret, in the dark of night. And that's why they let Judas lead them to Jesus while he was outside the city. And Passover set it up perfectly. Every Jewish family was feasting starting at sundown. And then they went to bed. That's what happened. But we see the religious leaders. The religious leaders are the ones that were not fickle. They were consistent. Throughout the scriptures, we see that consistency that they are threatened by the change that Jesus brings. And we see them time and time again opposing Jesus. And once again, they're the ones that are coming after him. Think about that. Like the very people, the religious people that should be standing for God are not. They failed. And not only that, they're trying to kill Jesus. It's crazy. And I think it's because they're numb. They're numb. They don't feel it. The religious system had gone numb. The only thing that they could think about was that Jesus broke the rules. And the thing is, when any of us become numb, we become dangerous. And we see that in verse 47. We're told that while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large, what? Crowd. Armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So what was the second crowd? The crowd at the arrest and the trial. This was the crowd that would push for crucifixion. This was an alliance of chief priests and elders and all their buddies that were originally on board with them. Matthew goes on to explain that in chapter 27. Sorry, in verse 20, he says, But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd, their friends, to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. The crowd at the arrest and the trial. What group of people think about this? Was, the, was around at the crack of dawn on a major Jewish holiday. What, what group of people? The, what ones would shout crucify him? They're mostly the corrupt priests and their friends. Maybe some Roman soldiers who also wanted to kill Jesus. And the whole thing is a kangaroo court of sorts. 
that they're bringing charges that don't even make sense. And we're told that Jesus' arrest and his trial were super quick. They occurred in the wee hours of the morning when most of Jesus' supporters were in bed, sound asleep. Peter's denials were told that happened as the rooster crowed. Remember, he denied Jesus three times. The rooster crows, which is about 4 to 5 a.m. if you live in New Cumberland. Um, we're just moving on from there. There's a the whole chicken thing. If you don't know about that, there's all chickens in Lemoyne and people are talking about having chickens. But anyway, as the rooster crows at about 4 to 5 a.m., um, Jesus' final sentence is told that he can't, was handed down at sunrise. But there's more. Jesus was crucified at 9 in the morning. You know, you know what else was taking place at 9 in the morning? The first temple service of the day. The first temple service. The authorities knew that they had to finish their secret trial before the crowds and everybody re-entered the city. And indeed, as Jesus was carrying the cross out of town, that's when his supporters reappear, shocked, unsure of what just took place, right? How did this happen? And that's the third crowd. That's the crowd at the cross, and Luke describes it this way. As the soldiers led him away, they see Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way from where? Outside Jerusalem, from the country, from Perry County. And he put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. By the way, if you're from Perry County, I love you. I crack jokes at Perry County, I love, great, great place, great people. But, but it's the crowd at the cross. Who was here? It's a mix. Surprise followers and several religious cronies that have stuck around to see Jesus die. It's a mix. We're told Simon the Cyrene is there. Why is he there? Well, he's coming back into the city to go to worship. That's what he was doing. He was on his way to church. Like, you know, and that's when all of a sudden, do you imagine his surprise? Like all of a sudden, hey, you, pick this up. What's going on? Who's that? What am I doing? Like just total confusion. And the crosses were arranged on a major road intentionally so that people would see, they would see what had taken place and that they, wouldn't, they too would not do what those had been crucified had done. His followers just learned of the events that transpired the night before. And you imagine Many are shocked. They'd seen Jesus heal. They thought another miracle was coming, so they too stuck around to see if Elijah was coming or you're going to take him off the cross or what's going to happen here. See, prior to remembering my experience at the Passover Seder and the, the Monday Thursday service, I always had thought, maybe you too, that the crowds were very, very fickle. But the Palm Sunday crowd wasn't present at his arrest or his trial. The entire plot unfolded as the Passover festivities were taking place and while most people were sound asleep. So there were three crowds, not one. Three crowds. Where do you see yourself? Do you see yourself among the outsiders? People welcomed by Jesus, but maybe afraid to follow what they might give up or lose. Maybe you see parts of it, I do too, in the religious people. Sometimes going through the motions of religion. Jesus wants to change things in you and your life and your practice, but you cling to it. Or are you among the confused and the angry? Jesus isn't doing what you expect, and you have no idea what all this is about. See, friends, the circumstances looked bleak. The cross looked like the end. But we have to watch our assumptions. We have to watch our assumptions of who is who, who is doing what, 
what is taking place. We have to be careful in the movies, in real life, and also with God. Could God or even others in our lives, could God or others be doing something that we're not aware of and we don't have the full story? Could there be more going on than we see? There are times when circumstances looked one way but turn out to be something else entirely. What is that for you?